Now, several weeks ago, we as a church began going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This letter that Paul wrote while he's sitting in prison. And he writes it to a group of young churches in and around the city of Ephesus, which was on the western edge of, the, of ancient Asia Minor today, the western edge of Turkey. I've asked you to read through this letter in one sitting at least once a week. Um, it takes 17 minutes for the average reader. It doesn't take much time at all. Uh, at least once a week, get a cup of coffee, get a cup of tea, turn off everything, get very still, pray a short prayer, and then just read it in one sitting. Now, if you've been doing that, perhaps you've noticed that there are these strange characters that show up throughout the letter. They appear at key moments. They appear here in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, the passage that Grace read for us. God raised Jesus from the dead, set him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and lordship and above every name that's invoked both in the present and in the age to come. Now here we see some characters. Jesus, it says, is exalted above powers and authorities. Now, if you have a Bible, find Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verse 10. They come up again here. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was made known to, there it is again, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So these rulers, these powers, these authorities, not only has, does it say in chapter 1 that God has set Jesus over them, but in chapter 3, God teaches them about his wisdom through the church. And does anyone who's read the book of Ephesians know where rulers and authorities shows up again? The most famous passage in Ephesians, the very last chapter. So look at the very end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is finishing his letter, and he says, what else is there to say? Just this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on God's complete armor. Then you'll be able to stand firm against the devil's trickery. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age, against the spiritual wicked elements in the heavenly places. And it goes on like that. So, at the beginning of the letter, in the middle of the letter, and here at the end, Paul brings up these characters, powers and authorities. And here at the end, he says in this extended kind of metaphorical, it seems, saying, he says that we're engaged in battle with these powers and authorities, and that our enemies 
when we move through this world are really these things. These, this is the enemy behind the enemy. Now, what is this all about? What are these powers and authorities that come up throughout Paul's letter? Well, to begin with, when you're reading the Bible, the, there are two fundamental assumptions you have to have if you want to read the Bible with the grain. Right? I can interpret a conversation between Lois and Sheldon against the grain. I can take something that, that Lois says against the kind of grain of what she's actually trying to say. Or I can listen to them talk with the grain. I can listen with them to what they're saying. If you want to read the Bible with the grain of Scripture, you have to have two fundamental assumptions. One is that in Scripture God speaks. And the other is that all of Scripture tells a single coherent story. If you don't have those two fundamental views, you can treat the Bible in a thousand different ways, but you're not treating it according to the grain. You're reading against it. You're twisting it. Now, when you come to a passage in Scripture where something comes up and, you, and you're just kind of befuddled by it, everybody in Scripture seems to get it, but you don't seem to get it, then a, then a lot of times what you can do is go back to the beginning and figure out how this thing that you're befuddled by has been treated throughout the story and let the story define the thing and not your own framework. So when Paul is, is hammering on about rulers and authorities in heavenly places, and that totally doesn't fit an Enlightenment modern framework, instead of reading against the grain, let's say, well, what did Paul mean by this? What was his framework when he was talking about this? And Paul was a Jew. So Paul's framework was primarily formed by the Old Testament. And this issue of powers and authorities comes up throughout the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is bringing when he lays it out here for the Ephesians. Now, if we want to know what the powers and authorities are, the place we need to start is at the beginning. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, and find verse 26. This is for Esther. <laughs> Esther thinks that I go back to the beginning a lot. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created him, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And he goes on in that vein. Now what I want you to see here is that God... The great God, the creator of all things, chose to mediate his authority through humans. In, in, in the beginning of scripture, God has all authority. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's making everything. The, there's one God. He's the creator God, and he has all the authority. But then, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he makes something that he delegates some of his authority to, his authority of dominion. 
So he creates humans and he says, tag, you're it. Now, I want you to, to move in this world with my authority working in you. I authorize you to have dominion, to subdue, to fill, to live in this earth. Now, turn to Deuteronomy if you have a Bible. Chapter 32. It's a couple of books to the right. Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Look down at verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High God gave to the nations their inheritance, the one true God, the Creator God, when he gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, the Most High God, is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. Now what we see here, this is one of the passages in the Bible that shows us That God not only mediated his authority to humans, he also mediated authority to some other creatures. And these creatures are what Paul calls the powers and authorities. Now, go once more to the right. To the very middle of the Bible, find Psalms. Find Psalm number 82. So here in my Bible, it's right in the center. Easy, ready to find Psalms? Just close your Bible and open it to the middle. You'll probably land in it. Find the 82nd Psalm, Psalm number 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Right there, that phrase, that's the powers and authorities. Here they're called the gods, okay? They're this other creature that has authority. Now stay with me. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Who's he talking to here? The gods. The powers and authority that have been delegated some measure of authority in this creation. Then he says of them, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is shaken because these gods aren't acting the way they should. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, the great God, the Most High God, the one true God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here we have another passage dealing with these powers and authorities. And this time they're called the gods. They're not deities alongside the one true God. They are created beings. They're created by the Most High God. And the really important thing to see here 
is what their job is. What is their job in this passage? It is to maintain justice. That's their job. Their job is to guarantee that justice is done among the nations. Now, in the worldview of the Bible, justice, justice is the restoration and the maintenance of shalom. The webbing together of God, humans, and creations in a state of flourishing and thriving. Now, go back just a few pages to Psalm number 29. The 29th Psalm. Ascribe to the Lord, the Most High God, the one true God, the Creator God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, rulers and authorities. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So here we have another passage dealing with the powers and authorities. And here we learn they should be serving the Most High God through worship. Okay. Now, what's going on in all of this? Something has happened. Something has happened to the spiritual powers and authorities just like something has happened to humans. Humans were created and given mediated authority in this creation. God also created other creatures and mediated his authority through them. And just like humans have broken and mistreat and mislead and do things they shouldn't do and don't worship the one true God, in the same way, it appears, the powers and authorities have fallen too. These heavenly beings, sometimes called the gods, whose job is to lead the nations critically in justice. Something's happened to them. And we see this showing up throughout the Bible. Now, go back to the beginning of the Bible, to the passage Mike read to us, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is the fall of the powers and authorities. Genesis chapter 6 is to the powers and authorities what Genesis 3 is to the humans. It's the breaking the falling into bondage. In Genesis chapter 6, this was the foundational passage in Paul's worldview. It's called Second Temple Judaism. It's um, after Israel rebuilt its temple uh, several centuries before the birth of Christ. This is called Second Temple Judaism. The first temple had been destroyed centuries before. And then there comes this moment where Israel is allowed to rebuild its temple. And throughout this time, we have ample 
documents written during this time. Some of them in the Bible. Some of them are during something called the intertestamental period, which is the period in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We have lots of documents from this time. And these documents give us an insight into the mind of, into the worldview that Paul would have had. And all over these documents, they're pointing back to Genesis 6 as their way of understanding the spiritual reality that they interact with. That what's going on in Genesis 6 is a very strange story for modern people. What we see here is that the powers and authorities, like humans, rebelled against God by crossing a boundary that God had set. God had set a boundary in the garden around a tree. Don't eat that tree. Here's a boundary. Here's a limit on what you can do. Humans cross the boundary. In Genesis 6... There's a boundary that is crossed. Here we see that the powers and authorities, sometimes called the gods, sometimes called the heavenly beings. And did you catch it? In Psalms, sometimes called the sons of God. That's what they're called, not only in Psalm 29, it's also what they're called here in Genesis 6. The sons of God, God had given them a separation. They had authority, but there was a boundary between them and humans. And a breach occurred. And it's the breach of the cosmic order that constituted their fall. And their fall, it mirrors the fall of humans. So in the same way that Adam and Eve were not content with the role that God had given them in creation, these powers and authority who had been given a role, which is to nurture justice, were not content with their role and out of ambition grasped for something that did not belong to them. So in the worldview of the Old Testament, reality is more than you can see with the naked eye. There are more actors in the drama of the cosmos than God and humans and nature. There's also these figures, these powers and authorities to whom God had originally delegated authority over certain aspects of creation and this is the conceptual framework that Paul is working with when he writes to the Ephesians. He's a Jew. He's driven. He sees the world through this framework. This is the vocabulary he uses for talking about reality. Now, I began by asking the question, who are these figures, these powers and authorities that keep coming up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians? And we've looked at some of the key passages in the Old Testament that, that flesh that out. Now, I want to press pause here for just a moment. And before I go any further, I want to point out two pitfalls that we have to avoid when we're talking about this stuff. Some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. He was a professor of English literature at Oxford and then toward the end of his life at Cambridge. He was a Christian. In 1942, he published a fascinating little book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a piece of satire written in, in, the, in the fascinating kind of um, genre of Pope and Swift. 
good British satire. In, in this little bitty book, he writes, Screwtape is the name of a demon, a senior demon, writing a series of letters to his nephew, a demon named Wormwood, who's just getting started in his career as a demon. And the uncle is the mentor of the neophyte, the young demon, the apprentice. And the uncle is held responsible for leading young Wormwood to secure the damnation of a particular British man. They merely call him the patient. Now, it's a fascinating piece of satire. Um, one of the things Lewis suggests when he writes this is that there are two equal and opposite errors into which people tend to fall when they think about stuff like we're talking about this morning. On the one hand, he says it is a mistake to fall into wild, wild and irrational, irresponsible speculation about this stuff. It's very, very easy, Lewis says, to overread this stuff. To overread our lives in this whole arena of spiritual conflict. To see every episode of pain and suffering in our life as some manifestation of a cosmic battle. That's one mistake you can make. On the other hand, he, he suggests it's a mistake to feel so enlightened that you sneer or mock this stuff. The very idea of a spiritual world, a demonic reality, and, and to simply write it off as an accommodation to a primitive worldview framed in mythological language. Now, come on. Science is now telling us that the vast majority of the universe can't be seen or measured. All we can do is theorize about it and call it dark matter. Now, if we can accept science when it says there's something that's, name, that's, that's measureless, that, that there's no way we can register it, but it's most of reality, can we just begin to say that maybe there is a lot we can't see as moderns and not sit in judgment on every aspect of pre-enlightenment worldview? What I want to do for our church is I want us to urge us to take all of the Bible seriously. And to take this part of it seriously too. And while it is very difficult to think rightly about all of this, some of us need to pull back from fantastic, Fantastic speculation. Some of us need to stop seeing spiritual warfare behind every stub toe and every dead battery. And others of us need to and learn to envision the world through a thicker account of reality than science can provide. Let's learn how to take the spiritual realm seriously, without taking it fantastically. And to do that, I think we've got to start with the fundamental claim the Bible is making. That there is such a thing as a force or forces that are driving 
injustice and evil. And that these forces are at the very least suprapersonal. They can learn things, but don't, don't go so far that we give them every attribute of a person. So let's start with opening our modern framework, opening it up to accept that there is this hidden depth dimension to evil in our world. I'm not asking that we try to become pre-enlightened. God forbid. Who wants to live in a pre-enlightened moment? Who wants to give up the air conditioning that is freezing me to death right now? (laughs) Who wants to give up penicillin? Who wants to give up dentistry? The list goes on and on. We should not act as if the Enlightenment and modernism is all of a piece. It's not. It's complicated. We don't want to give up any of the remarkable insights that science has opened for us. But I am saying that when Paul is talking in Ephesians about the powers and authorities, don't strip that phrase of every spiritual nuance. And and treat it as if that's some first century mythology. What I am saying is that when Paul is talking about powers and authorities in the letter to the Ephesians, don't discount this as mythological language reflective of an outmoded worldview that's irrelevant to us today. That's the first move I think we need to make. It's just without diving into details. Say that there is more to this world than science can account for. Science is not king. And moving on from there, let's recognize that the biblical view is that our world is enslaved to these powers. They are in rebellion against God. They're in rebellion against God's good purposes in creation. And while the Bible doesn't say a lot about them, it does tell us three things that are very helpful. First of all, some of what we saw in the Psalms indicates that the powers and authorities were originally created to play a legitimate role within creation, overseeing especially the social, cultural, and political aspects of life. But they have rebelled, and now they foster large-scale injustices, systems of economic oppression, systems of social exploitation. This is why people who go into the very important work of politics are so vulnerable. Because that's a locus of a power that is bigger than well-written laws. It's bigger than goodwill and good intent. It's bigger than the sum of people's political debating. So they have 
These powers, they no longer function so that nations come to fear and worship the Most High God. They enslave nations, cultures. Have We even say there's something in the air with that country. That's where this, that language, something in the air for Enron, people who went to work for, I grew up in Houston, people who went to work for Enron, deeply committed Christians, get caught up with something in the air that leads them into an entire system of graft and corruption that profoundly destroyed people's lives in America. Something in the air. That's exactly right. That's what Paul is getting at here, but he's naming it. These powers, they, they were supposed to lead culture, society, political aspects of people's lives. Supposed to lead them toward justice and flourishing, but instead they pursue strategies that prevent humanity from carrying out its mission to be the image of God on an earth that flourishes. The powers orient the cultures of the world so that humanity develops patterns of sin that enslave us in death ways. Second, turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, another one of Paul's letters, way to the right, getting close to the maps. If you need to use your table of contents, please do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice what else is important for us to recognize about the powers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Y'all see Gil sitting all smugly over here? That's because he's using his iPhone and he gets there faster than those of us who are using old technology. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Now he's talking about what I just said. Who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which... God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now here we see that in some mysterious way, these rulers, these powers and authorities, these quasi-personal forces of evil in our world, some, in some mysterious way, they are responsible for the death of Jesus. That's what Jesus is banging on about in Mark chapter 3. When he, in Mark chapter 3, he says, look, there's a dark power in this world. And somebody's got to break his power over this world. And that's what I've come here to do. I am going to enter the strong man's house and bind him. So that his house can be plundered. Go to... Colossians, um, a few books to the right, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So, in some mysterious way, these rulers are responsible for the, for the death of Christ. Look what it says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. 
It says that Jesus Christ, look at verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made us alive together with him by having forgiven us of all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, what we see is that in Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, God defeated these powers and authorities that rebelled against God and enslaved the nations and humans. Now, with that in mind, go back to books of the Bible, to Ephesians. Our passage for this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and lordship and above every name that is invoked both in the present age and in the age to come. Now what I want you to know is that Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 20 to 23 is the thesis statement of the whole letter. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, this is um, SOL kind of stuff. This is read something and tell me what the main idea is. This is the main idea of the letter. And if you don't get this, the whole letter is going to get muted. It's going to get limited. You're not going to be able to feel the full weight of the letter. The the central claim of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is audacious. It is this, that God the Father has installed Jesus Christ as Lord of all creation, including the powers and authorities. God has seated Jesus Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places far above. The fallen powers and authorities. On the cross and in the resurrection, there was a victory. God has triumphed over the rebellious powers that enslave this world. It is no coincidence that the expression of the gospel that the modern church typically gives has neutered the problem To merely morality. And has acted as if the gospel is the solution to only your moral failings. But the gospels say over and over and over. Our failings are symptoms of a much bigger problem that modern science can't take account of. That this world is much thicker than merely flesh and blood. That there are spiritual authorities and forces at work. That there is, there is an evil behind the evil. And on the cross, Jesus was not 
only delivering forgiveness to us, absolutely he was doing that. In fact, Paul says that back in chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Absolutely that's part of it. But the problem with the modern church is that's all we want to talk about. That God's forgiven you of your sins. But Jesus, yes, he did that. Yes, that's vital. Yes, it is so important. We'll see next week one of the greatest passages of Scripture is when Paul says, but God, rich in his mercy, delivers us and forgives us. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But there, are also, there is a big problem in our world. And America has not been able to solve it with all of its money and all of its technology and all of its education. And that problem is real. There really are spiritual powers and authorities. There really is something the evil that is greater than the sum of its parts. That is nameless and, and it's slimy and it's hard to get a hold of. And right about the time you educate a population and you enrich a population and you technologize a population, they start bombing other populations and committing evils that are off the scale. And how do you account for that? How do you account for this kind of stuff? This is how the Bible accounts for it. In Christ, God was dealing with the whole problem, including this aspect of it. And in Christ, on the cross, as much as he was giving you forgiveness, he was breaking the strong man's power in our world. Now think about what this would have meant for the Ephesians, living in a pre-enlightened worldview. Remember, they're not living with our view of things. What they were living with is much closer to what I've heard Mike and, and Donna talk about when they lived for a decade in Papua New Guinea. What, what they were living with, perhaps, just if you've not lived in Papua New Guinea, can you imagine an animistic culture? Can you imagine reading this letter that God has set Jesus far above all authorities in a culture that is not scientific, but it's animistic? And can you imagine that you don't need a theology degree in that moment to know what this is talking about? Can you imagine how comforting this is when now you do not have to be so afraid that you've got to keep your amulet on? Because if you don't keep your amulet on, the evil eye will get you. Do you, do you see what it would be like to read this in a culture that really does believe in these powers? To be told all of a sudden that God is truly more powerful than evil spirits and curses and the evil eye and all the power of the en enemy. That the power of God and the power of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than any conceivable spiritual being. And the implication is that believers can let loose of amulets and magic and all shamanistic techniques for navigating these spiritual powers. The power of God through a vital union with Jesus Christ is adequate. Now, that's easy to me. I can totally get it. Reading this in some parts of Africa, in some parts of South America, in some parts of Asia, you don't need a theology degree. 
But what about us here in Harrisonburg? In the year 2017, what does it mean for us to hear that Jesus Christ is the Lord over every power and authority? Four things very quickly. Number one, it means we need to be confident. We need to know that the God we worship is greater than every rival God. And people who think we no longer worship Mars and Aphrodite and Mammon have not been living with their eyes open. Do you really think money, sex, and power don't have power in our world today greater than than just some kind of physical explanation? The gods that the Romans named and the Greeks named, they were still alive. Those forces are still at work. The Ephesians lived in an environment where many gods and goddesses were worshipped. And Paul is saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than them. And he's deeply concerned. We saw this last week. He prayed that God would open the eyes of their heart. That they would see that God's power is available to them that's greater than those powers. The Ephesians had grown discouraged and afraid because they were a minority. We are living in a moment where we're increasingly experiencing the dynamic as Christians of being the minority. Many of you work in organizations where you are the minority. Many of you move in circles where you are the minority. And do you feel a pressure? Do you feel a weight pushing on you? Do you need to hear from Paul? That even like the Ephesians, looking around and you're this tiny little minority, do you need to hear that your God is the true God and He is far above every power, even the powers that fill the world you move in? The Ephesians were discouraged and afraid. Are you Discouraged? Are you living in fear? Are you afraid of the powers that work so strongly in our society? Are you afraid to profess Christ as the one true Lord? Have you lost the confidence in professing that? We live in this society where tolerance has become a coercive weapon to exclude the Christian point of view. Why is it that we can be tolerant of everything in America? But why are we becoming increasingly intolerant of the Christian point of view? Our nation has a cultural heritage in which those who have power treat their opponents not simply as mistaken, but as despicable. Did you notice in the last election that there was no way to talk about the other party without shaming them and despising them? And Christians are complicit with this heritage. We need to model a fresh way forward, a genuinely pluralistic way forward, one in which every viewpoint has the right to be heard without being marginalized and defamed. Let's learn. To be relationally winsome and accessible and humble and loving in our posture that Jesus Christ is the only true God. And at the same time, brave in letting people know that the hope we've got is in Jesus. Second, 
if the spiritual reality is real, then we need to pray. That's what Paul says at the end of the letter. And he gets to the end of the letter, he says, pray. Prayer is complicated for modern people because they're not convinced in a spiritual reality. Prayer is not complicated when there's a reality that a hammer can't address. Prayer makes all kinds of sense in this worldview. Pray. Paul starts the letter to the Ephesians praying. All through the letter, he erupts in a prayer. He ends the letter in prayer. If you really believe this, then pray. The reason Paul prayed that the eyes of their heart would be opened with a fresh gift of God's wisdom so that they can know what kind of power is available to them was because he believed prayer actually could achieve that. We pray because we believe God acts differently if we pray than if we don't pray. And if you slip into some kind of Jeffersonian deism where God is off in the sky like some clockmaker, where prayer is really just some psychological tool for your benefit then eventually you won't pray. But what we see is that this worldview makes sense of prayer and it causes us to recognize that prayer is our primary way of working for God in this world. Not only way, not even a sufficient way, but the primary way. Third, second pray, third Get to work. Get to work by naming the powers and resisting them. Where people are degraded and undervalued, where shalom is marred and prevented, there are powers behind that. Humanity deserves all kinds of blame. For what's wrong with this world. We are complicit in all the ways that God's world is perverted. But we are not all there is to the story the Bible tells. The scriptures recognize that something far more complex. Something more far reaching has happened in creation. And we are called to discern the dynamics driving injustice And to name it and to create alternative solutions that make manifest the kingdom of God. Retaking this world for his glory and for his name and for the good of our city. And how do we do this? We'll see it as we keep going through the book of Ephesians. This this is his thematic statement and he's going to work it out from here. And just a quick preview, the way we do this. Is through the mundane, persistent acts of love. Spiritual warfare is primarily mundane, persistent acts of creative love. Standing up against injustice and violence. Standing up against everything that is marring shalom. This is how we will wage war. So, let's get to work as a church. 
Let's recognize that those moments when it is hard to love, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. Go for it. And it is just as hard as real warfare. Go for it. You don't have to find a demon behind every bush. Let's name the powers and resist them. I said four things. I meant three. Like the passages of Scripture this morning, the sermon got rewritten many times, and I decided to deliver you from the fourth. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this day. Thanks for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Help us as a church, Lord, to take this stuff seriously. Give us a fresh gift of your wisdom so that we can know that there's more going on to this world than we can see and so that we can be confident and we can pray and we can name this stuff and resist it. In Jesus' name, amen.